8. He always hangs there, for though it seemed to us very wonderful, everyone else seemed used to it, like Venice. The University of Virginia should first be seen by moonlight. There could not have been a finer moonlit night, I thought, than that cold, crisp one upon which my companion stood for two hours beside the rotunda, gazing at the lawn and drawing it, its frosty grass and trees decked with diamonds, its white columns standing out softly from their shadow backgrounds like phosphorescent ghosts in the luminous blue darkness, until I was nearly frozen I stayed there with him. That drawing cost him one of the worst colds he ever had. The university ought to have, and has, many traditions, and life there ought to be, and I'll indifferent from life in any other college. Jefferson brought from Italy the men who carved the capitals of the columns the descendants of some of these Italian workmen live in Charlottesville today, and when the columns were in place he brought from Europe the professors to form the faculty, creating what was practically a small English university in the United States. Never until. A dozen years ago, Dr. E. A. Alderman became president. Had there been such an office, before that time the university had a rector, and the duties of president were performed by a chairman of the faculty, elected by the faculty from among its members. This was the first university to adopt the elective system, permitting the students, as Jefferson wrote, and controlled choice in the lectures they shall attend, instead of prescribing one course of reading for all, no less important. The University of Virginia was the first college to introduce 1840 to the honor system, and still has the most complete honor system to be found among American colleges. The system is an outgrowth of the Jeffersonian idea of student self-government, under it each student signs, with examination papers, a pledge that he has neither given nor received assistance, that is found sufficient, students are not watched, nor need they be, with time this system has been extended so that it now covers not only examinations, but many departments of college life, eliminating professionalism in athletics and plagiarism in literary work, and resulting in a delightful mutual confidence between the student body and the faculty. Madison and Monroe were active members of the university's first board of visitors, the first college YMCA was started there, and among many famous men who have attended the university may be mentioned Edgar Allan Poe, Thomas Nelson Page, and Thomas Woodrow Wilson, whose name appears thus upon the University Magazine for 1879-80, as one of its three editors. Beale Starr Poe attended the university for only one year, at the end of which time his adopted father, Mr. Allen, of Richmond, withdrew him because of debts he had contracted while acquiring his education in gambling and drinking champagne. Poe's former room, number 13 West Range, is now the office of the magazine, The Queen lovely manuscript in Jefferson's handwriting, of the first Anglo-Saxon grammar written in the United States, is to be seen in the university library, Jefferson was vice president of the United States when he wrote it, he put Anglo-Saxon in the first curriculum of the university, and it has been taught there ever since, in a note which is a part of the manuscript, he advocates the study of Anglo-Saxon as an introduction to modern English on the ground that though about half the words in our present language are derived from Latin and Greek, these being the scholarly words, the other half, the words we use most often, are Anglo-Saxon. Before the war it was not uncommon for students at the university to have their Negro body servants with them, and it has occasionally happened since that some young sprig of Southern aristocracy has come to college thus attended. Perhaps the most striking and characteristic feature of student life today, from the point of view of the stray visitor, is the formal attitude of students toward one another. There is no easy-going casualness between them. 
no calling back and forth, no, hello, by way of greeting, they pass each other on the walks either without speaking men have been punished at the university by being ignored by the entire student body, or if they do greet each other the customary salutation is, how are you, sir, or, how are you, gentlemen, first year men are expected to wear hats, and not to speak to upperclassmen until they have been spoken to, and, though there is no hazing at the university, woe betide them if they do not heed these rules. In the early days of the university there was an effort to exercise restraint over students, to make them account for their goings and comings, and to prevent their going to taverns or betting upon horse races. Also they were obliged to wear a uniform. The severity was so great that they appealed to Jefferson, who sided with them. He, however, died in the same year, and friction prevailed for perhaps a decade longer, with many student disorders, culminating in the shooting of a professor by a student. In 1840 the students were at last granted full freedom, and two years later the honor system was adopted. During the university's first years young men from the far south, where dueling was especially prevalent, did not come in large numbers to the University of Virginia, but went, as a rule, to the northern colleges. But about the middle of the century, as feeling between north and south over taxation, states' rights and slavery became more acute. These men began to flock to the college at Charlottesville. Between 1850 and 1860 the university almost doubled in size, and at about the same time there developed a good deal of dueling between students. When the war ended many men who had gone into the Confederate Army at 16 or 17 years of age came to Charlottesville to complete their education. The hard life of the Army had made some of these into a wild lot, and there was a great deal of gambling and drinking during their time, and also after it. For several succeeding generations of students looked up to the ex-soldiers as heroes, and carried on the unfortunate traditions left by them at the university. In the 90s, however, a change came, and though there is still some drinking and gambling, it is doubtful whether such vices are now more prevalent at the University of Virginia than at many other colleges. The honor system has never been extended to cover these points. It is related that, in close time, Gambling became such a serious obstacle to discipline and work that the university authorities set the town marshal after a score or so of gambling students, pro among them, whereupon these students fled to the ragged mountains, nearby, and remained for two weeks, during which time Po is said to have mightily entertained them with stories and prophecies, including a forecast of the Civil War, in which, he declared, two of the youths present would fight on opposite sides. The Poe tradition is kept vigorously alive at the university. Not long ago a member of the Raven Society, one of the rather too numerous student organizations, discovered the burial place of Poe's mother, who was an actress, and who died penniless in Richmond at the age of 24 and was buried with the destitute. By a happy inspiration a fund was raised among the students for the erection of a monument to her an example of fine and chivalrous sentiment on the part of these young men, which, one feels, is somehow delicately intertwined with the traditions of the honor system. The Pope Professor of English at the University, when we were there, was Dr. C. Alfonso Smith, who has since taken the Professorship of English at the United States Naval Academy, by a coincidence which has proved a happy one for those who love the stories of the late Sidney Porter O'Henry. Dr. Smith grew up as a boy with Porter, in Greensboro, North Carolina, because of this and also because of Drive Smith's own gifts as a writer and an analyst. It is peculiarly fitting that he should have undertaken the work which has occupied him for several years past.
the result of which has recently been given to us in the form the O. Henry Biography. Dr. Smith was Roosevelt Exchange Professor at the University of Berlin in 1910-11, holding the Chair of American History and Institutions. While occupying that professorship he met the Kaiser. I talked with him twice, he said, and upon the second occasion under very delightful circumstances, for I was invited to dinner at the palace at Potsdam, and was the only guest, the Kaiser, Kaiserin, and Princess Victoria Luz being present, the Kaiser Island of course, a very magnetic man, his eyes are his most remarkable feature, they are very large, brilliant, and sparkling, and he rolls them in a manner most unusual, while he is always the king and the soldier. He can be genial and charming. One might expect a man in his position to be blasé. But that, most of all, is what he is not. He is like a boy in his vitality and vividness. And he has a great and persistent intellectual curiosity. It is this, I think, which used to cause him to be compared with Colonel Roosevelt. Both would like to know all things. And both have had, and have exercised more, perhaps, than any other two living men the power to bring to themselves the central figures in all manner of world events, and thus learn at first hand, from acknowledged authorities, about the subjects that interest them which is to say, everything, he frankly admired America, I don't mean that he said so for the sake of courtesy to me, but that he has or did have, then an immense and rather romantic interest in this country, a great many Germans used to resent this trait in him, America held in his mind the same romantic position that the idea of monarchy did in the minds of some of us. I mean that the average American went for romance to stories of monarchy, but that the Kaiser, being used to the monarchial idea, found his romance over here. I am, of course, speaking of him as he was five or six years ago. He wished to come to America, but was never able to do so, since German law forbids it, and, perhaps because he could not come. America was the more a sort of dream to him. He asked me about some of the things in Berlin which I had noticed as being different from things at home, and when I mentioned the way that history was kept alive in the very streets of Berlin, his eyes danced, and he said that was one of the things he had tried to accomplish by the erection of the numerous monuments which have been placed in Berlin during his reign. He told me of other means by which history was kept alive in Germany, among them that every officer has to know in detail the history of his regiment and that German regiments always celebrate the anniversaries of their great days. He speaks English without an accent, though we might say that he spoke it with an English accent. He told me that he had learned English before he learned German, and had also caused his children to learn it first. He reads Mark Twain, or had read him, and he enjoyed him, but he said that when he met Mark Twain the latter had little or nothing to say, and that it was only with the greatest difficulty that he got him to talk at all. He subscribed, he told me, to Harper's Magazine, and he was in the habit of reading short stories aloud to his family, in English. He admired the American short story, and I remember that he declared, the Americans know how to plunge into a short story. We Germans are too long-winded. When Professor Smith talks about the Kaiser, you say to yourself, I know that it is growing late, but I cannot bear to leave until I had heard the rest of this when he drifts presently to O. Henry. You say the same, and so it is always, no matter what his subject, at last. However, the grandfather's clock in the hall below his study sends up a stern message which is not to be mistaken, whereupon you arise reluctantly from your comfortable chair, spill the cigar ashes out of your lap onto the rug, dust off your clothing, and take your leave.
nor is your regret at departing lessened by the fact that you must go to your bilious colored bedroom in the new Gleason, and that you will not see the university, or Professor C. Alfonso Smith, or Mrs. Smith again, because you are leaving upon the morrow, so it must always be with the itinerant illustrator and writer, they are forever finding new and lovely scenes only to leave them, forever making new and charming friends only to part with them, faring forth again into the unknown. Chapter XVI Fox hunting in Virginia better to hunt in fields for health and walk than see the doctor for a nauseous draught. The wise for cure on exercise depend, God never made his work for man to mend. Dryden, it is my impression that the dining car conductor on the Chesapeake and Ohio train by which we left Charlottesville was puzzled when I asked his name, but if he sees this and remembers the incident he will now know that I did so because I wished here to mention him as a humane citizen. His name is C.G. Mitchell and he was so accommodating as to serve a light meal, after hours, when he did not have to, to to hungry men who needed it, if travel has taught my companion and me anything, it has taught us that not all dining car conductors are like that, nor, I judge, can all dining car conductors play the violin, pleasantly, in off hours, as does Mr. Mitchell, better one merciful dining car conductor than twenty who wear white carnations at their left lapels, but where no hearts below them, the road by which we drove from the railroad into the fastnesses of Loudoun County, where, near the little settlement of Upperville, the race meet of the Piedmont hunt was to be held, suggested other times and other manners, for though we rode in a motor car, and though we passed another now and then, machines were far outnumbered by the horses which, under saddle, or hitched to buggies, surreys, and carts of all descriptions, were heading toward the meeting place, on these roads, one felt, the motor was an outsider, this was the kingdom of the horse that we were visiting, soft dirt roads were there for him to trot and gallop on, and fences of wood or stone, free from barbed wire, were everywhere, for him to jump, throughout the week we had looked forward to this day, and even more, perhaps, to the party which, if we could get back to Washington that night, was to follow it, Wherefore the first thing we did on reaching a place where information was obtainable was to inquire about facilities for leaving. Herein my companion had the advantage of me, for there was nothing to prevent his departing immediately after the races, whereas I must remain behind for an hour or two, to learn something of fox hunting as practiced in this region. My motoring immediately after the races to a neighboring town blew a month if I remember rightly and there taking an interurban trolley to some other place, and changing cars and going without his dinner, my companion found that he could get to Washington by nine o'clock, my case was different, should I be delayed more than two hours I could not get away at all that night, but must miss the much anticipated party altogether, and, though my companion seemed to view this possibility with perfect equanimity, my memories of the charming lady whom we were to meet at the stage door, after the performance, were too clear to permit of indifference in me, the trolley my companion meant to catch was, However, the last one, my only hope, therefore, was to motor a distance of perhaps a dozen miles, over roads which I was frankly told were, middling to bad, and tried to catch a train at the plains station, if I missed this train, I was lost, and must spend a solitary night in such a room as I might be able to find in a strange village, that possibility did not appeal to me, I began to wish that there was no such thing as fox hunting, or that, there being such a thing, I had chosen to ignore it, now, said my companion cheerfully, we'll telegraph her, at a telegraph office he seized the pencil and wrote the following message, 
will call for you tonight after performance. To this he signed his own name. What about me? I suggested, after glancing over his shoulder at the message. Oh, well, said he, there's no use in going into all that in a telegram. It's sufficient to let her know that one of us is coming. But I propose this party. Well, he gave in with an air of pain patience. What shall I say? Then, shall I add that you are unavoidably detained? Not by a jugful. I returned. Add that I hope to get there too. And will make every effort to do so. He wrote it out. Sighing as he did so. Then, by careful cutting, he got it down to fourteen words. By that time the operator couldn't read it. So he wrote it out again gloomily. This accomplished. We matched coins to see who should pay for the message. He lost. All right, he said. I'll pay for it. But it's all foolishness to send such a long telegram. No, I returned. As we left the office and got into the machine. It is not foolishness. If I can make life a little brighter for a beautiful woman. By adding a few words to a telegram. And sticking you for it. I shall do it every time. He looked away over the fields and did not answer me. So we drove on in silence to where stands the beautiful manor house called Hunland, which is the residence of Mr. Joseph B. Thomas, MFH of the Piedmont Hunt. There is, I have been told, no important hunt in the United States in which the master of foxhounds is not the chief financial supporter, the sport being a very costly one, of American hunts, the Middlesex, in Massachusetts, of which Mr. A. Henry Higginson as MFH has the reputation of being the best appointed. The Piedmont Hunt Island however, one of the half dozen leading organizations of the kind, and it is difficult indeed to imagine a finer, in a well-kept park near Mr. Thomas's house stand extensive English-looking buildings of brick and stucco, which, viewed from a distance, suggest a beautiful country house, and which, visited, teach one that certain favored hounds and horses in this world live much better than certain human beings. One building is given over to the kennels, the other the stables. Each has a large sunlit court, and each is as beautiful and as clean as a fine house a house full of trophies, hunting equipment, and the pleasant smell of well-cared-for saddlery. In a rolling meadow, not far distant, is the race course, all green turf. And here, soon after luncheon, gathered an extraordinary diversified crowd. For the most part the crowd was a fashionable one, men and women of the type whose photographs appear in Vogue and Vanity Fair and whose costumes were like fashion suggestions for sport clothes in those publications. One party was stationed on the top of an old-time mail coach, the boot of which bore the significant initials FFB standing, as even benighted northerners must be aware. For first families of Virginia, others were in a line of motors and heterogeneous horse-drawn vehicles, parked beside the course, and scattered through the gathering, like brush marks on an impressionist canvas. One saw the brilliant color of pink coats. Handsome hunters were being ridden or led about by Negro grooms, and others kept arriving, ridden in by farmers and breeders, while here and there one saw a woman rider, her hair tightly drawn back under a mannish derby hat, her figure slender and graceful in a severely cut habit coat. Jumbled together in a great green meadow under a sweet autumnal Sunday these things made a picture of what, I am persuaded, is the ultimate in extravagant American country life. There was something, too, about this blending of fashionable sand farmers, which made me think of the theater, for their island in truth. A distinct note of histrionism about many of the rich Americans who, go in for, elaborate ruralness, and there is a touch of it very often, also, about, horsey, people, they like to, look the part, 
and they dress it with no less care than they exercise, at other seasons, in dressing the parts of opera-going cosmopolites, or wealthy loungers at the beaches, in other words, these fashionables had the overtrained New York look all over them, and the local rustics set them off as effectively as the villainous young squire of the Drury Lane melodrama is set off by contrast with honest old Jasper, the miller, who wears a smock, and comes to the great house to beg the young master to make an honest woman of poor Rose, the fairest lass in all Hampshire. About the races themselves there was something fascinatingly non-professional. They bore the same relation to great races on great tracks that a very fine performance of a play by amateurs might bear to a professional performance. First came a two-mile steeplechase, with brush hurdles. Then, after a couple of minor events, a four-mile point-to-point race for hunters ridden by gentlemen in hunt uniform. This was as stiff a race for both horses and riders as I have ever seen, and it was very picturesque to watch the pink coats careering uphill and down dale, now over a tall stone wall, now over a brook or a snake fence, and when a rider went head over heels, and lay still upon the ground where he fell, while his horse cantered along after the field, in that aimless and pathetic way that riderless horses have, one had a real sensation which was the pleasanter for knowing, a few minutes later, that the horseman had only broken an arm. Next was run a rollicking race for horses owned by farmers, and others, whose land is hunted over by the Piedmont and Middleburg foxhounds, and last occurred a great comedy event a mule race, free for all, in which one of the hunting men, in uniform, made such a handsome showing against a rabble of white and colored boys, all of them yelling all of them beating their long-eared animals with sticks, that he would have won, had he not deliberately pulled his mount and thrown the race. The last event was not yet finished when my companion, who had become nervous about his interurban trolley, got into a machine to drive to Bluemont. Of course, he said as we parted, we'll miss you tonight. Oh, I said, I hope not. I expect to get there. I don't see how you can make it, said he. You had a lot of material to gather. I shall work fast. Well, said he, trying to speak like the voice of conscience, I hope you won't forget your duty that's all. I propose this party tonight. It is my duty to be there. You didn't make any definite engagement, said he. And, besides, your first duty is to your editors and your readers. Having tossed me this disgusting thought, he departed in a cloud of dust, leaving me sad and alone, but not yet altogether in despair. The last race over. I hastened to Mr. Thomas's house, which, by this time, looked like an old English hunting print come to life, for it was now crowded with pink coats. For most of the technical information contained in this chapter I am indebted to various gentlemen whom I encountered there, in Virginia which is the oldest fox hunting state in the Union, the sport having been practiced there for nearly two centuries the words hunt or hunting never by any chance apply to shooting but always refer to hunting the fox with horse and hounds. A hunter is not a man but a horse, a huntsman is not a member of the hunt but a hunt servant, the field may be the terrain ridden over by the hunt, or it may be the group of riders following the hounds, hunt followers, hunting men, and hunting women. The following items, from Bailey's Hunting Directory, a British annual, give some idea of certain primary formalities and practicalities of hunting, hints to beginners by the best horses you can afford but remember that a workably sound horse, though blemished or a bit gone in the wind, will give you plenty of fun, if you do not knock him about, obey the master's orders without argument, in the field he is supreme, hold up your head if you view the fox away, do not hello, 
If none of the hunt servants see your uplifted hap, go and tell the nearest of them. Ride fast at water, if hounds clear a brook a horse has a good chance of doing so. Steady your horse and let him take his own pace at big timber. Keep well away from hounds, and downwind of them at a check. The steam from heated horses adds a fresh difficulty to a recovery of lost scent. Look out for signs that may indicate the whereabouts or passing of the fox. Huddling sheep, staring cattle, chattering magpies, circling rooks, may mean that they see, or have just seen, the fox. Never lark over fences, it tires your horse needlessly and may cause damage and annoy the farmer. Never take a shortcut through a covert that is likely to be drawn during the day, and keep well away from a covert that hounds are drawing if you start for home before the day's sport is over, lest you head the fox. Always await your turn at a gate or gap, do not try and push forward in a crowd. If you follow a pilot, do not ride in his pocket, give him plenty of room, say 15 lengths, that fences, or if he falls you might jump on him. If your horse kicks, tie a knot of red ribbon in his tail. N.D. Do not be guilty of using this rogue's badge for the sake of getting room in a crowd, as some men have been known to do. If a man is down and in danger of being kicked, put your own saddle over his head. Hence concerning the hunter it should be remembered that in the ordinary routine the horse is fed three or four times a day. On a hunting day he gets one good feed early in the morning and loses one or two feeds. Moreover, he is doing hard work for hours together, with a weight on his back. Carry a couple of forage biscuits in your pocket to give him during the day. Also get off and relieve him of your weight when you can do so. When he is brought home, put him in his stall or box. Slack the girths. Take off the bridle and give him his gruel at once. Throw a rug over his loins and pull his ears for a minute or two. An old horse needs more clothing than a young one. Condition is a matter of seasons, not of months. A horse in hard condition can take without injury a fall that would disable a soft one for weeks. In old times many of Virginia's country gentlemen kept their own packs, but though some followed the hounds according to the English tradition, there developed a less sportsmanlike style of hunting called hilltopping, under which the hunting men rode to an elevated point and watched the hounds run the fox, without themselves attempting to follow across country and be in at the kill. As a result, the fox was, if caught, torn to pieces by the hounds, and the brush and head were infrequently saved. Under the traditions of English fox hunting traditions the strictness of which can hardly be exaggerated, hilltopping is a more than doubtful sport, and, since organized fox hunting in the United States is taken entirely from the English idea, the practice is tabooed on first-class hunting regions. The origin of hilltopping island however, easily understood, the old fox hunters simply did not, as a rule, had horses adequate to negotiate the country, hunters not having been developed to any great extent in America in early times. The perfect type of hunter is a thoroughbred stock. By the term, thoroughbred, horsemen do not mean highly bred horses of any kind, as is sometimes supposed, but only running horses. All such horses come originally of British stock, for it is in Great Britain that the breed has been developed, although it traces back, through a number of centuries to a foundation of Arabian blood. I am informed that climatic and other conditions in a certain part of Ireland are for some reason peculiarly favorable to the development of hunters and that these conditions are duplicated in the Piedmont section of Virginia, and nowhere else in the whole world. Only the staunchest, bravest, fastest type of horse is sweet for hunting in Virginia, and for this reason the more experienced riders to hounds prefer the thoroughbred, 
Though half-bred and three-quarter-bred horses are also used to some extent, the thoroughbred often being too meddlesome, when he becomes excited, for any but the best riders, the finest qualities of a horse are brought out in hunting in the Piedmont section, for the pace here is very fast much faster than in England, though it should be added that in the English hunting country there are more hedges than over here, and that the jumps are, upon the whole, stiffer. The speed of the Piedmont hunt and other hunts in Virginia is doubtless due to the use of southern hounds, these being American hounds, smaller and faster than English hounds, from which, however, they were originally bred. The desirable qualities in a pack of hounds are uniformity of type, substance, speed, and color. These points have to do not only with the style of a pack, but also with its hunting quality. Thus in the Piedmont pack they breed for a red hound with white markings so that the pack may have an individual appearance, but in all packs a great effort is made to secure even speed, for a slow hound lags, while a fast one becomes an individual hunter, the unusual hound is therefore likely to be drafted from the pack, there has been a long controversy as to whether the English or American type of hound is best sweet for hunting in this country, and the matter seems still to remain one of opinion, probably the best English pack in the United States is that of Mr. A. Henry Higginson, some years since, Mr. Higginson and Mr. Harry Worcester Smith, of Worcester, Massachusetts, master of the Grafton Pack, made a bet of 5,000 aside, each backing his own hounds, the question being that of the general suitability of the American versus the English hound for American country. The trials were made in the Piedmont region of Virginia, and Mr. Smith's American hounds won the wager for him. In the last 10 or 20 years hunting in the United States has been organized under the Hunts Committee of the National Steeplechase Association. Practically all the important hunting organizations are members of this association, there being 40 of these, 11 in Virginia, 9 in Pennsylvania, 6 in New York, 4 in Massachusetts, 3 each in Maryland and New Jersey, and 1 each in Connecticut, Vermont, Ohio, and Michigan the Gross 8 want towns, near Detroit being the most westerly of recognized hunts, although there is some unrecognized hunting near Chicago, an idea of the comparative importance of hunting in the United States and in England may be gathered from the fact that in Engle, 